0: Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, setting the news and information. BlankRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul. BlakeRadio.com. We got it. Like we can to Hi, this is doctor Jennifer Daniels and you're listening to Healing with Dr. Daniels at the Blake Radio Network Rainbow Soul Channel. So today's topic is Is your doctor having trouble making ends meet? Now, you might say, well, Dr. Daniels, so what? Who cares? The truth of the matter is, it has an impact on all of us because of the things doctors are being told to do in order to make ends meet. And so even if you never see a doctor, uh, this actually has an impact on you. So, the medical industrial complex gives doctors tips on how to make more money. And so first, I'm going to establish that there is a financial gap here, number one. Number two, uh, we're going to talk about the medical industrial complex. Who is it? What is it? And, you know, what's their position? And then we're going to take a look at the information slash advice that they're giving to doctors via their inbox and how this advice impacts your life. This is important. Okay. Okay. So, is your doctor having trouble making ends meet? So first, it's to establish what's really going on here. So let's just say for the sake of discussion, this is uh, 2015, because uh, 2014 rather, because that's really the latest year for which we have numbers. So average doctor, uh, this is an average doctor, family practice, pediatrician, psychiatrist. Uh, I was a board certified family practice doctor, so I would be in this category if I were still practicing. Uh, is offered $189,000 a year. It sounds pretty good. And you can get this at uh, salarywizard.com, family physician salary. And this lucky employee also gets uh, bonuses, Social Security for ONK, contribution by the employer, although I do think he has to match that. If he doesn't match that, then... uh, He won't be able to collect any of that. Disability insurance, health care, $6,000 a year. That sounds like a solo plan to me. Um, Pension, again, it might be contributory, it might not be. And, of course, time off. Now, let's just say this person is married with two children, and that's a reasonable thing to guess uh, for a doctor. Well, this doctor has got expenses. And for the sake of discussion, the take-home pay for someone earning $189,000 is $8,800 each month. And what I'm going to take a look at is what are this person's bills. And I'm still going to take a look at the, but just the major bills. We're not going to talk about things like the cost of bubblegum or an evening out for dinner. So. Educational loans. Average uh, burden is $176,000. Is, this is average. It's actually low uh, because I took the number for family practice doctors. The specialists tend to have higher debt, which is $180,000, $200,000, even higher. But we're going to look at the average doctor primary care. So the repayment at 9% interest, which is reasonable because this person, while they may have taken the loans out at 6%, they have compounded while this person was in medical school and in residency. And some loans were at varying uh, percentages higher than others. Okay. So what's the repayment? $2,530 a month. House payments. Okay. person's going to live, most doctors, even family practice, tend to live in urban settings. So in other words, higher cost of living. So house payment, $2,593 a month. Or even if they're renting an apartment sufficient for two adults and two children in a big city, uh, this might be the tab. Childcare. This is a lot of money. $2,489 a month. Why? In a minute, we'll see that his wife is working, or the spouse is working. Food. $722.50. This number you can get from USDA.gov site, uh, and this is the average, not the economy plan where you're eating at the at the uh, welfare kitchens and getting free food, but average food expenses. $722.50 a month. Person's got to get to work. And this is family practice doctors. person's got a call. So they're going to be going to work really closer to six, maybe even seven days a week. So you need a reliable car. Car payment, $479 a month. Car insurance, $200 a month. Gas, maintenance for car. Gas prices have gone down. So this is only $120 a month. Clothing. $557 a month to clothe mom, dad, and two kids. And if we do the math here, $8,800 take home pay each month, everything we have talked about adds up to $9,690 a month. So it's a $890 deficit every month. So every month, this doctor's got to put on his credit card or someplace $890. Now, I've not included house maintenance, cleaning supplies, laundry expenses, eating out, meals eating out, family vacations, Saving for the kids' college educations. So we can see the deficit can easily run $2,000 a month and would require an additional $40,000 a year in income. The children are in daycare because mom works. Let's say your income is part-time and covers for clothes and transportation to work and some but not all of the expenses above. So it's clear there is a money gap here. So much so that doctors are getting free advice from the medical industrial complex on how to remedy this. So, who is the medical industrial complex, and, like, why do they care? First of all, they care because they have eroded doctors' doctor's uh, incomes so much that even though gross revenue to a doctor's is 20%, the doctor's overhead has been so inflated by electronic medical records, by uh, increased insurance regulations, by all these different standard of care issues that of that 20% that officially goes to doctors in terms of fees, very little bit of it is the doctor actually able to take home in terms of his pay. So why would the medical industrial complex even want the doctor to show up and go to work? Why would they tell him, hey, hang in there, keep doing this, and um, here's some tips on how to earn money because the doctor is the engine that drives the other 80% of the revenue in healthcare. And let's see who gets this revenue. Well, hospitals get this revenue. And um, hospitals is a broad term, but we can call uh, hospitals, uh, hospitals, nursing homes, clinics. Um, drug companies get this revenue. Doctors write a prescription. Insurance companies um, would have no business at all if uh, people didn't have a desire to see doctors. And then there's an entity that people don't often notice, and that's the government. So the government writes and writes the standard of care in many cases. It certifies the doctors, it certifies the hospitals, it, uh, through FDA, approves drugs. So the government has a huge hand in all of this and in creating the present climate of medical care and creating the relatively hostile environment that doctors are uh, practicing in. So before we get through today, we're going to find out the hostile environment this creates for human beings. So uh, these entities, hospitals, drug companies, insurance companies, and government, get the remaining 80% of the healthcare dollar that doctors do not get, but also they're the ones that make the rules, the standard of care, that creates the 880,000 killings a year at the hands of properly prescribed therapy. So these members of the medical industrial complex are uh, very important actors, and of course they also make sure that the doctor's share of the healthcare dollar stays at 20 percent or less. And the 20 percent the doctor does get, he's got to turn around and give it back to the medical industrial complex in overhead. Okay. So let's see what the medical industrial complex is recommending for doctors who are having financial difficulties. So this is, a, this is really a hoot. And it's eight ways to earn extra income. Yes. And this is really, uh, this is really amazing. And again, you have to, as always, Consider the source. So, the uh, first way, of course, is they tell the doctor, they break the news to him, you've got to get a second job. Now, how many of you grew up with a father who worked at a plant, a factory? or some limited income job, and the only way he could expand his income was to get a second job. Yes, and so that's what they say. This is what you got to do, doctor. You've got to get a second job, and they even give the doctor a little bit of sympathy. Whether you're on salary or your own practice, you may have times when it feels like you can't get ahead. Your list of monthly bills probably includes a mortgage, car loans, education debt, money to set aside for retirement, and perhaps kids' tuitions. None of these costs are likely to go away soon. Now, I self-employed as a doctor, and I figured out real quick that these kids' tuition, there was going to be no kids' tuition fund. And I also figured out real quick that uh, retirement, uh, forget that and I made sure I erased my education debt before I even started my medical practice. Of course, by keeping it low, by working in an underserved remote area. So this person they're talking to is your regular of the mill person who thought all they had to do was go to medical school, study, and keep taking out loans. So this person has a lot of uh, expenses created by their uh, perception. And they said that leaves only one option, you will need to earn more. Where do you start? And so one part, one portion is to devote a portion of your free time to a job outside of the practice. Plenty of companies want your medical skills. And it's often easier to take outside work than to add new services to your practice. And this is really um, a slap in the face because actually doctors are legally prohibited from adding new services to their practice, either one, because they don't run the practice, or two, because um, doctors are not allowed to stock, formulate, and sell um, remedies, we'll put them, remedies to their patients, because of course that's obviously in direct conflict with drug companies who make the standard of care. And so taking an outside job can add 5000 to 10000 a year in extra income. But wait, we just figured out this guy needs 40000 a year. Okay, so obviously these suggestions are probably not going to relieve the person's pain in a meaningful way. And they say, and an extra income might be even more in some cases. That's a nice boost. And not just for young physicians needing to pay off their medical school debt. It can also help employed physicians on fixed salaries. In other words, older physicians who lost their medical practice or provide a cushion for independent physicians with fluctuating practice income. So what they're saying to the doctors here is even older doctors are going to need to go back and get a second or third job. And having a second or third job when you're 50-something is pretty demanding, especially when your first job has irregular hours and nighttime call. And so they're giving the doctor a little bit of encouragement here. Taking on a different job can also revitalize your passion for medicine adds the founder of Physician Renaissance Network, a consulting firm based in New Jersey that helps physicians with their careers. So, of course, he makes more money the more doctors look for work. So doctors looking for extra money may not want to expand their practice and work longer hours doing the same thing, he says. They may be feeling burnt out or in need of more varied intellectual challenges. And so having a new challenge can restore their enthusiasm for their career. So wait until you read what they tell these doctors to do. Some of these jobs will make you thankful for your day job. What moonlighting can mean for you? And uh, some physicians take on quite a few outside jobs. For example, Jordan Grummet, MD, works in a nursing home and a hospice and serves as an expert witness in legal cases and writes a blog for an online physician community. And so he says, well, having other jobs is a great way to balance your work and life, he says. In a typical week, he spends 20 hours seeing patients in the office, 20 hours visiting a nursing home, 5 hours visiting the hospice, 5 hours working on his blog or writing articles. And so, we have 20, 40, easily 50 hours here, and he hasn't even included going to the hospital to admit patients or taking evening call. His work as an expert witness varies from week to week and month to month. These jobs provide new insights into clinical medicine, making him a better and more efficient physician. Okay. Even though he admits his blog writing brings in only a few thousand dollars a year, he wouldn't give it up for the world. Writing he says helps you avoid burnout. Okay so uh, they've got this example here of a doctor who's not earning that much money but pretty happy with it. To find the jobs he wanted, Dr. Grumman developed a wide network of potential employers and constantly reached out to the community. So you went to medical school so you could be on a continual job search. He says, I'm always looking for new opportunities. And so, let's see what they recommend. So here are some options to consider. Doctor, they say, continue reading. One, perform claim reviews. Reviewing insurance claims is a part-time gig that can be done at home or anywhere else for that matter. Your work will be sent to you via the Internet by an independent review organization. These are outside companies health insurers engage to address concerns that might be They might be improperly denying claims. So you have this job, which is a serious conflict of interest, right? Your money is coming from, indirectly, the insurance company that's looking for justification for denying claims. So obviously, if you reverse too many claim decisions, you lose your job, number one. Number two, these same physicians at their day job, which might be their medical practice, are the victim of claim denials and not getting paid. For care that they actually provided. And so, why don't you get a job in the evening denying all the medical claims for your other colleagues, and they'll get an evening job denying all of your medical claims. So, because of your evening job, your day job pays you even less. And so, this is their idea of a reasonable way to increase your income if you're a doctor and you don't have, you're not making ends meet. Why don't you get a job? a night job, which essentially you will work at cutting your daytime income even more. And so they say, all of this work can be done online, says um, so-and-so MD, National Medical Director of Physician Review. He says, a few hundred physicians work for CONSERTA as part-time reviewers. These doctors determine the medical necessity of coverage requests that have been flagged I consider nurse reviewers. So nurse reviewers have decided, hey, uh, let's not pay for this medical care the patient received. And now the doctor gets to work nighttime saying, yeah, the nurse was right. And so what this does, what it means for you as an individual, is this doctor who can't make ends meet is, is now recommending that he get a part-time job, nine-year claims, to make sure your insurance company is not obligated to pay anything, okay. So they also perform more extensive reviews that involve looking back at a particular patient's treatment over an extended period of time, he says. Okay, so now this is what happens to your medical records because of HIPAA. So the Health Insurance Privacy and Portability Act says that your insurer has a blank check, carte blanche, to all of your medical records without even asking you to sign any additional release. So when you go to see a doctor, whatever that doctor writes down can be seen by any insurance company. And there are many executives and employees. And in this case, you've got the nurse who's reviewed this situation and denied the claim. And now you have the physician reviewer coming in to rubber stamp it, basically. And so he says, these. Jobs usually pay between $85 and $200 or more per hour. Of course, the doctor can rubber stamp anywhere from you know one to $10,000 in claims he can deny in an hour. That's a pretty good return on investment for the company hiring him. So on the basis of the physician's qualifications and specialty. So certain specialties like cardiology, oncology, orthopedics, and psychiatry tend to be more in demand. And they're very much in demand because insurance companies are looking for ways to deny uh, that $20,000 heart attack evaluation that turned out to be indigestion. They're looking for ways to deny the um, $700,000 cancer treatment bill uh, for DCIS, which of course is not even a cancer diagnosis. DCIS is ductal carcinoma in situ, referring to breast conditions. Orthopedic surgery, again, big call to deny care here because these are very expensive procedures. So you need an orthopedic specialist to deny these claims and give it legitimacy. And of course, psychiatry, because in psychiatry, um, things can get very expensive with many drugs that are prescribed, and people can be inpatient for a month at a time, which is very expensive. These organizations, however, expect a lot in return for such compensation. Physicians who do this work need to be prompt, accurate, and reliable. In other words, what is accurate? Accurate means they need to get the right answer according to what the insurance company is looking for, so that's what accurate is. These companies often want a 24-hour turnaround, which means when they say jump, you have to ask how high, and the answer, of course, is right now. To meet deadlines they've agreed to with the insurance companies. And so this is very disruptive to your after-hours life. And they also require some degree of continued clinical practice, she says. This is extremely stressful. So here you are, your night job is denying payment for work other doctors have done, and they want you to continue to be working and sending in claims yourself that, of course, are going to be denied. And you might have to pick up the phone once in a while. If there is not enough information in the clinical record, the reviewer calls the patient's doctor to have a peer-to-peer conversation. This call has two purposes, to obtain information and to educate the physician on current evidence-based guidelines. Now, this is utter nonsense. The reason for the call is to intimidate the physician. Again, this is my opinion, my opinion only. Uh, having Having been in medical practice, that when you get a call from another doctor from an organization, whether the organization is an insurance company or a hospital or whatever, The purpose of the call is to intimidate you into doing something they think you want to do that you don't think you want to do. So this is a really unpleasant uh, interaction. So the pros, you can do this work at home and make decent money. In other words, you're working all day long at your day job, which is not paying you enough money, and now you go home in the evening and you check your email and you've got all of this work from these companies that has to be completed in 24 hours. And some of these charts are very long. Some of these charts are, you know, 50, 100 pages long. Cons: You might need to meet very tight deadlines, and obviously, the whole purpose of your job is to basically make sure your day job never pays. Okay. Next, you can work as an expert witness. Now, I had been an expert witness on several cases, so I know all—I won't say I know all about this. I have some inside information here. So work as an expert witness. Serving as an expert witness for attorneys is almost always part-time rather than full-time work. This is true. That's because opposing counsel is ready to denounce a full-time expert witness as a hired gun who has lost touch with clinical practice, and clinical experience is the real value a good expert brings to legal cases. Okay. And so this person says it makes me a better doctor because I have a chance to see what other physicians have done and think about how I could have done it better. And of course there is an occasional case where really you could not have done it better because the physician did follow the standard of care. But let's dismiss that. I've worked as an expert witness uh, once on a disability claim. So in other words they had um, a spy spy on the patient, uh, videotape him to see if indeed he was disabled. This person literally hung out at the end of the guy's driveway and photographed him in his garage, working in his shop. And so I was supposed to decipher these videos to see if any of the activities he engaged in were a violation of his disability, of his claim that he was disabled. And so of course, it's my job then as this expert witness to make sure people who file certain claims don't get paid. All right. Then, um, oh, okay, so, I worked as an expert witness, put a lot of time into the case at supposedly uh, $150 an hour, which is what they say the pay is, and never got paid. So, um, another expert witness. Uh, I was asked to be an expert witness uh, for an individual. I won't go into all the details. They flew me down to Florida. You know, I, I well before I went to Florida, I reviewed the reviewed the the case. It's okay, I can help here. Flew me down. I testified. Um, they, the people I testified on, be, on behalf of won the case, great success, again, never got paid. So, working as an expert witness, it's a romantic notion, but uh, the probability of getting paid is not 100%. And so this is what's being recommended to doctors who have difficulty making ends meet. And the person, the doctor says the payment will always be better than in my medical practice, she says. She makes two thousand to five thousand dollars per case. Again, good money if they pay you. The median hourly fee for file review preparation for all medical expert witnesses is three hundred and fifty dollars, according to a survey. And they're saying develop a niche, start a web page, establish your expertise, blog and do a small area of expertise but you can dominate your market he says now time out so how much time is this person gonna put into putting up a web page blogging, establishing a reputation so literally you're putting out several hours of marketing time for every possible hour of work that you might get. So before starting uh, this person advises negotiating a retention agreement, a cancellation policy, and, if you can get it, a minimum number of hours for deposition testimony and trial testimony. In most cases, she says, the work simply involves giving the lawyer your expert opinion. The next most common task is writing a report to be used in a legal case. A small number of those cases may go to court and require you to give a deposition. And so, to avoid the hired gun accusation, you need to keep practicing medicine. If you'd like to testify in medical malpractice cases, it's best that you maintain at least a part-time practice. And uh, Before you get the idea serving as an expert witness might be easy, getting on the witness stand can be a grueling experience. A California malpractice attorney describes his interrogating techniques. He asks experts how often they work for the same attorney how much they still devote to practicing medicine. And when he can, he points out that an expert's opinion is contrary to a well-respected and known treaty such as the Medical Society's published standard of care. Yes. And we know that since the standard of care is responsible for the death of 880,000 Americans a year, that the fact that the doctor may have deviated from it may actually be a plus. But uh, as an expert witness, you have to uh, make sure that you stick with this. And so, what's good about this is geared to part-timers and payments are quite generous. Again, if you get them. Cons, if you go to court, you may face rough treatment by opposing attorneys. Yes, definitely need a thick skin. Next, perform independent medical exams. Well, that sounds really nice. I mean, we're all for independence. Unfortunately, of course, these medical exams are anything but. And so though this type of part-time work can be rewarding, be forewarned, you'll be performing a history and physical exam that are very different from what you do for your own patients. In other words, the person hiring you decides what constitutes a physical exam. And you'll be trying to establish whether this person merits a payout for workers' compensation, auto insurance, health insurance, or Social Security. Yes. And so who is paying this independent medical exam fee? Well, the People at the workers comp board, of course, the auto insurance people, the health insurance people, or the social security people, obviously the patient who's trying to get the benefit or this payment is not the one paying the independent medical exam, so the independent medical examiner is not really independent, and if he um, writes up too many opinions in favor of the patients who are seeking workers' comp seeking auto insurance seeking health insurance payments or seeking social security, obviously he won 't be in Uh, employed very long. And they presume, of course, that the patients are, well, not entitled to money. So in some cases, physicians may be, patients may be hiding some aspect of their physical condition so that they can qualify for a payout. And so this puts the doctor totally on the opposite side of the fence in terms of patients or just generalized citizens. And so literally, this doctor's job is to make sure that you don't get access to Social Security that maybe you've been paying into for 20 years and that you don't receive a health insurance benefit that maybe you've been paying for every month. Or it may result in your auto insurance uh, premiums being uh, discontinued or even increased. So. So a family physician and independent medical examiner in Florida says if that's the case, the independent medical examiner will try to uncover it. You have to be pretty thorough. So I've been doing medical exams for quite a long time, and it's a good business, he says. His fees range from as little as $100 an hour for a Social Security exam to $500 an hour for private payers. And again, what's a private payer? A private payer is the insurance company directly contacting him, saying, hey, we have this person that we don't want to pay out to can you look it over and help us with this? And so you have a doctor who has a regular medical practice, a daytime practice, where he's seeing patients, maybe some of his patients are, are disabled, maybe he's you know, writing a little note for them and then his nighttime job is denying those claims. What a way to increase your stress level and of course for your patients uh, you know, it's it's tough on them because what you're doing basically is making sure that what they've paid you to do during the daytime is actually futile. Now, you say, well, Dr. Daniels, these, these doctors aren't denying their claim to their own patients. No, 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 they're not, they're not. You know, I deny your patients, you deny my patients. It's that type of setup. But what this does, though, is it makes a total mockery and fraud of Social Security, health insurance, auto insurance, and workers' compensation. Because you have these doctors who are called independent medical examiners when actually they're paid by the very people who are trying to deny these benefits. And so the doctor says the payments can add up to a tidy income. Scope Medical, a Massachusetts-based company that hires physicians to serve as IMEs. So now they have a company, Scope Medical, that is put between the insurance industry that wants to keep the premiums as collected and the doctor who's of course not really neutral. Reviewers can earn between 5000 and 75000 per year and the work can be done on Saturdays and early evenings. Just why I went to medical school, so I could work 50 hours during the week and then on Saturdays and early evenings. Scope physicians typically examine six to ten patients at a time at a Scope family facility following a specified format the company states. Again, a lot of times simply specifying the format of a process can bias the outcome. As is the case with claim reviews in general, this company says there's higher demand for certain specialties such as orthopedic surgeons, neurologists, cardiologists, ear, nose, and throat, obstetrics, hand surgeons, and psychiatrists. The way you write your report has to be geared to the way a lawyer thinks. For example, if the doctor reports the patient's medical condition was exacerbated by a car accident, the patient will probably get very little compensation. But if he reports it was aggravated by the accident, there is money around that, Dr. Kaling says. So in other words, these doctors have to use words that minimize the compensation. Learning these nuances in terminology and understanding the goals that the independent medical examiner are supposed to meet requires training. Oh, so now you have to go back and get more training. Dr. Kalen advised taking some courses approved by the American Board of Independent Medical Examiners and then getting ABIME certification. And so, if you're seeking this kind of work, contact workers, comp programs, auto insurers, other companies and agencies. And so now here you are, you know, you've gone through this long educational process to become a doctor, borrowed all this money. You now have this job where you cannot make ends meet. And here they're telling you, brush up your resume and uh, shop it around, just like any uh, 22-year-old bachelor's degree uh, candidate. So one of the pros, payments can be generous and you can create your own schedule. Cons, the people you examine may feel antagonistic towards you. <laughs> you think? And so, again, the issue is that these... Independent medical examiners are not independent. Their pay comes from the people who are trying to deny to the public, to you as an individual, social security, health insurance, auto insurance, workers' comp, or any type of uh, insurance payout that you may think you are entitled to just because you pay premiums or just because you pay taxes. And so this solution to the doctor's financial woes Again, he might earn between 5000 and 75000 So this is not a magic bullet. It's not really going to solve his problems. All right, number four. Invent a new medical device. Yes. <laughs> so plenty of practicing doctors have made extra income inventing a new medical product. They're in a perfect position to do so on the front lines of medicine, They're constantly confronting unsolved problems and have thought about solutions. According to a 2008 study, almost 20% of medical devices, inventions, involved a doctor, at least as a co-inventor. This is shocking that 80% of medical devices did not involve doctor input. Uh, Back in the good old days, say 1900, doctors literally uh, invented um, devices and tools to assist them in their medical practice. And so now, as you can see, this has largely been taken out of the doctor's hands, and 80% of medical devices invented are being invented in the marketing department of a large company without doctor or patient input, uh, for that matter. So these physician-linked inventions received more positive citations and had higher ratings than corporate inventions. Huh, no surprise. And so they tell you about being an inventor, and they cite a Dr. Robert Gans, who has taken out 20 patents in 25 years and sold one of his companies for $400 million in 2012. Nice once-in-a-lifetime story. But the truth of the matter is, most doctors are so harried with the time commitment from their initial job, that one, they don't have time for inventions, and two, when they do invent something, they don't have the budget to even move the invention far enough forward where it could be developed. And so, Dr. Gantz says, it's very difficult to see it through. Coming up with the ideas is the easy part. The hard part is taking out provisional and full patents, directing animal and human clinical trials, getting approval from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and marketing the product. The process involves tens of thousands of dollars in investments. I'll repeat that tens of thousands of dollars in investments. So is this really practical for someone who has a $40,000 a year income gap that they're trying to close? Probably not. And so many inventions don't pan out. Well, let's be honest, most inventions don't pan out. And Dr. Gant says, some of my products projects have failed. And so any inventor can tell you, uh, you know, Westinghouse <laughs> invented the light bulb and tell you 10,000 tries to finally get a light bulb. So, You have inventions that most of them are not going to pan out. That's just the numbers game. And each invention is going to cost you tens of thousands of dollars to move forward. So this is really not a solution to the doctor who needs an extra $40,000 this year right now. So you can make your life easier by selling the rights to your product as early in the process as possible. But Dr. Gans said there's a definite downside to that. When a company pays you for your idea... You'll never get a lot, he says. You might get as little as $25,000. In fact, you probably will. So this does not solve any problems. Pros, you can make a lot of money on inventions and have a positive impact on medical care while still managing to keep your practice going. Cons, it takes a lot of time, effort, and money to bring an invention to market. And many ideas fail. Exactly. And I can tell you about Vitality Capsules. It's at least $20,000 just to get Vitality Capsules to the point where one bottle could be sold. And that's a simple supplement. So that is totally beyond the reach of a doctor who's experiencing a $40,000 per year earnings deficit. Number five, see nursing home patients. There's a reason why physicians caring for nursing home patients usually do it part-time. Who is a medical director at two Not one, but two nursing homes in Austin, Texas. If you're working full-time, going to many different facilities, he said, you lose your focus and the quality of care suffers. Although he's a medical director at two facilities. Okay. And um, he says the best way is to work in a nursing home is to serve as medical director and see patients there as well. And so you can only have one medical director in a nursing home. And so the other doctors who are just seeing their patients there are actually losing money on the deal because, as he said, Medicare and Medicaid don't pay well for patient visits. And nursing homes prefer their medical directors to provide patient care because they're therefore more engaged with how the facility operates. In other words, they want the medical director to provide medical care because that gives them more control on the medical director. medical director job requires at least 20 hours of work a month. and the medical director typically spends another 10 hours a month seeing patients in the facility. So we're talking 30 hours a month. Salaries for nursing home medical directors run from 54000 to 203,000 dollars a year, and the median is $78,000. Now here's something that might really make a dent in a doctor's $40,000 uh, income gap here. However, what we're looking at is, is 30 hours a month and another seven hours a week tacked on top of an already uh, 50-hour work week. And if she's family practice, uh, pediatrics, then they're taking call as well, so... In addition, reimbursements for treating individual patients can bring in $75 to $150 an hour if coded correctly. And obviously, if you code to maximize profit and revenue, then you become a target for fraud investigation. And so, they're recommending this saying, pros, work in a nursing home is usually part-time, and it can pay well if you combine it with being having a medical directorship. And again, um, there are not that many medical directorships to go around because each nursing home only needs one. Cons, physicians may be overwhelmed with calls from staff and families' demands. Facilities face numerous lawsuits for malpractice and elder abuse, but good news, doctors are usually not named in them. And so... What they're saying in terms of cons is there's a lot of time in terms of phone calls from staff and families that you're not paid for. And so this this hourly estimate of 30 uh, hours a month is uh, possibly an underestimate. In other words, it may be closer to 40 or 45. Now, I was medical director of a... detention facility for teenagers well say young people aged 10 to 16. um uh, it was a prison i guess is what you could call it because they could not come and go freely and um it turned out to be three hours a week actually being there and another um you could say three or four hours a week in terms of phone calls follow-up and that kind of thing But I actually had to be on call 24-7, which meant I really couldn't take a vacation. Or if I did, I had to sign out to another doctor and pay him to take my call. So being a medical director um, is, mm, you know, it it can be uh, demanding. But if you have your own practice, then the time you spend answering these phone calls is daytime hours that you would ordinarily be in your office anyway but it's not a uh, job that is without issues or without responsibilities, I guess. Okay, but this one, of all the ones listed, actually has the potential to solve a doctor's financial problems. He may never see his family, but he will solve his problems. Oh, well, here we go. Number six, partner with pharmaceutical companies or device companies. The Same, same thing. So payments from drug and device manufacturers for advice and speeches continue to be a source of extra income for many physicians, even though this practice has lost some of its luster now that these payments become public knowledge owing to the Sunshine, the so-called Sunshine Act. And so the doctor can now partner with the very same pharmaceutical companies that are writing the standard of care that contributes greatly to the 880,000 killings every year. And this is what he can do is he moonlights in the evening. So as recently as 2012, an estimated one-fourth of all U.S. physicians were being paid by manufacturers for speaking engagements and consultations uh, as opposed to receiving free meals from drug representatives, which were also reported. Now, we can see that these doctors actually need these free meals. I mean, if you have a $40,000 deficit in your family's budget, uh, you know, free meals come in handy. And I I can tell you, when I was practicing the drug companies would literally take the whole family, husband, wife, children, the whole family, to an outing, picnic, um, catered baseball game, and everything was literally um, all you can eat. And uh, looking at the budget of these modern physicians, they could definitely use that type of experience. But in that year, some drug manufacturers began cutting these payments. And in late 2013, Galaxo announced it would stop paying doctors to speak about his drugs altogether. Why? It doesn't have to anymore because doctors are more and more doctors are employees, they're obligated to follow the standard of care, and they don't have free will in making the decision about what they prescribe. And so device manufacturers are also cutting back on payments to physicians. Why? They don't have to bribe the physician. All they have to do is bribe the organization he works for. So 39% plan to cut expenses owing to new taxes on devices under the Affordable Care Act. And 50% of those companies plan to cut research and development, which is a source of payments to doctors. Now, background in the Affordable uh, Care Act is the Affordable Care Act clearly says that once the um, task force on screening and uh, medical devices approves the device, then it's automatically paid for under the Affordable Care Act. And so they no longer need to get the doctors on board. All they have to do is go directly to the U.S. task force and get their devices approved. But Dr. McLaughlin, the career consultant, believes many payments will continue, and public exposure of the the amounts won't harm doctors' reputations. Patients would not be upset about this, he says just because there are financial ties doesn't mean anyone is doing anything wrong, the site explains. Now it might not be wrong in terms of illegal but it may be, uh, let's just say, not beneficial to patients and also not beneficial to the public. So what we're really talking about here is getting paid by a pharmaceuticals company or device companies to give speeches um, as part of their marketing department. And so the, the doctor in the white coat with 10 years of education certification is being presumed to be um, a trustworthy source of information when actually he may just be reading a script and clicking some slides. And so what are the pros? Pharmaceutical companies make generous payments to physicians who advise them and give speeches about their products. There is a wide variety of work to choose from. Cons, Even though they're legal, any payments you get will be listed on a public website. Some companies are limiting or stopping certain payments to physicians. And again, what this means is when you listen to a physician giving a presentation about a particular uh, drug, that physician may have been paid to give that opinion. So it may not be a totally neutral or unbiased opinion. Next, provide care to prisoners. Let's just say this is clearly working for the government, uh, providing standard of care to people, prisoners, who may not have as much uh, free will to consent or withhold consent. And so prisons have a great need for more doctors and they have the cash to compensate them for their work. And I can definitely testify this. Uh, I had a uh, fellow classmate in medical school who started his own practice, Uh, the practice did not do well financially, and he got a job as a prison doctor making far more than what he was making with his medical practice with a lot fewer concerns. And so prison systems are under growing pressure from the courts to improve their health care of inmates, which used to be atrocious. In recent years, courts have been enforcing aspects of the Estelle versus Gamble decision. So healthcare spending per inmate saw a median growth of 10% over a four-year period in 39 states studied. That's not a huge growth. This is on top of a 50% median growth in healthcare spending from 2001 to 2008. So in 2001 to 8, it increased 50%, but from 2008 to 2011, it increased only 2.5%. Obviously, right now, not really a growth period. And so, a family physician in Salem, Oregon, has been working part-time in correctional facilities for 25 years. The payments are comparable to those of private practice, he says. But is it safe? Although there are many psychopaths behind bars, the doctor says physicians have far fewer risks than with patients in a hospital emergency department. Okay, so, again, with the prison situation, the pros, pay is good, cons, oh, pay is good, little paperwork, lower malpractice risk, and telemedicine allows some services to be handled off-site. Cons, prisoners have multiple health problems, many of them are mentally ill, however, guards are always nearby, and the work is considered safer than service in an emergency department. So of course, the con here is you you have to follow the standard of care. And uh, patient input, wishes, discretion really are not uh, a consideration. And finally, top it all off, practice telemedicine from home. Yes. Sit in your own home office. You can provide telehealth consults to distant patients. This work done by phone or over the internet is attractive to physicians who are looking for part-time work because you can arrange to take the calls in your off hours. Now, this is actually practical because you can arrange to take calls during a certain block of time. So doctors advise patients that they will never meet in person They deal with a variety of simple complaints, and um, video visits average $30 per visit, and each encounter takes 8 to 12 minutes, so we'll say it's about $180 an hour. But the physician also needs to review the patient's medical history, write a brief summary of the encounter, and provide instructions to the patient. Okay, so he has work to do after the encounter. So it's $180. We can just chop it down to $90. The rate could be worthwhile if you're used to seeing a lot of patients quickly. Now, also, again, the doctor has no overhead here. doesn't need to hire a nurse or all kinds of other things. Um, Texas maintains that patients must first have a face-to-face encounter with a physician before they can use video visits. Resistance has been ending, or eroding. Now, when I went to medical school back in the 1980-something, so long ago, we were actually taught that it was malpractice and poor medicine to even recommend anything for a patient that you had never seen. Now, this is actually, uh, so now, so now that there's money to be made by non-doctors, when doctors uh, engage in this practice, of course, we see the laws have changed. Many patients pay out of pocket for telehealth consults. Why? Thirty bucks for a telemedicine consult beats many people's copays. Medicare won't cover this kind of service, but some major private insurers, such as United Healthcare and Aetna, Cigna, have begun to cover the charges. Again, a $30 visit versus what it might cost for them to pay at the doctor's office. Caring for a patient you can't see or touch might seem risky. And again, what they're saying here is we know what you were taught in medical school, but so far the work has run into little malpractice activity. And to reduce risks, they're telling the doctor, go back to school for more training. Undergo training and telephone best practices and use protocols. And again, so you go back to medical school, not medical school, but training courses. And so, pros, you can work from home, set your own hours, growing field, many outlets to choose from, cons, payments are somewhat low, you may be barred from doing this work in your state. And so those are the nine recommendations. And so the problem, of course, is in the second job, in many cases, the doctor is working at odds with his day job. Even practicing telehealth from home at $30 per visit, this doctor can easily and quickly cannibalize his office visits that are paid at a rate of, say, uh, 90 to one hundred, ninety to $200 a visit. And so if the doctor works after hours at $30 a visit, he may soon find he no longer has a day practice, and all he has is a $30 per visit after hours practice. So what can we conclude about this is the uh, tips these doctors are getting earn money after hours is about as effective as the standard of care tips it's getting from the same source, the medical industrial complex. And so these doctors are ultimately going to put them right out of business, put themselves out of business with their part-time jobs and find themselves overall in actually worse condition. So we have five minutes left. Let's take a look at the chat room with a lot going out here. And let's see if there are any questions in the chat room. Parasites. Okay, let's see what we got here. (laughs) All right, so Okay. So the question here is they're asking the big thing now is the pharmaceutical industry just admitted that many of the cholesterol drug side effects are more dangerous than the high cholesterol condition so their solution is to sell safer drugs now this is something we see all the time and I call it bait and switch which is you introduce a drug and say hey this drug is great, it's effective, it's going to save lives oops sorry it's not saving any lives, it's actually killing people Oh, well, let's just make it safer and keep giving it. Well, time out. The the drug is not effective. The drug is not beneficial. So why don't we just end the charade? And so um, the question here is, Dr. Daniels, do you think that pharmaceutical companies are starting to believe their own lies, or maybe they just don't care anymore? Um, The answer is not that they're believing their own lies, or they don't care it's that they truly believe the public does not have a choice, and when you're looking at um, the public being forced to buy health insurance, being forced to submit to the standard of care, um, you're dealing with a population that's literally captive slash imprisoned. and so this is the way uh, this is the kind of behavior you see when the victims do not have a choice or are not perceived as having a choice, and that's really the issue here is they do not, they do not perceive that the people receiving the cholesterol drugs have a choice. (laughs) Okay, Dr. Daniels, what do you think about ADD or ADHD? Is it a scam or is there no such thing? Okay, so um, ADD, for those of you who don't know these letters, is Attention Deficit Disorder, ADHD, is Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Um, so, it's, this is basically a constellation of symptoms that a child can exhibit. 90 seconds. And the question is, first of all, these symptoms are really do happen. The question is, are they a disease or are they not? And, uh, my feeling is it's not something that requires medical intervention. I'll just, uh. Leave it at that. Well, that brings us to just about the end of this show, and I'd like to remind people to go to VitalityCapital.com and sign up.com uh, forward slash remedies and get their report. Remedies so powerful they can make sixty seconds obsolete. That is your first uh, course in terms of defending your health, which is simply to not take the drugs. And watch your boxes. I'll have a special uh, surprise coming out later on this week. So check your inboxes. Okay, this is Dr. Daniel signing off. And as always, think happens. <laughs> Boxer, Boxer. Can't see a bird. Ten seconds. Thank you for using Blog Talk Radio. Goodbye.